You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. If you turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, very end of chapter 1 this morning. We're going to read together verses 43 through 40, sorry, 43 through 51. Beginning in verse 43. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray together. Our Father, we have lifted our hearts and our voices in praise to you and expressed to you the worship that, uh, part of the worship of which you are due. We thank you that we have had this opportunity, but now we know that it is more important for us to hear from you in the pages of your word than it is for you to hear from us. And so we pray, O Spirit of God, that you would be our teacher, that our Lord Jesus Christ would be magnified here, and that you would show us more of the glories of our Savior here in this passage. We commit our time to you and pray for your grace to be extended to both speaker and listener, that as we look at your word and study it this morning, you would be pleased with it that you would be pleased to meet with your people in it. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We've been looking at the disciples here at the end of John chapter 1, and I think we've seen in each one of the disciples something of which you and I can relate to. At least I have seen in each one of these men that we've looked at things which I can sort of see reflections of myself in them. Uh, Peter, for instance, perhaps there are some of you here who can relate to Peter, in the sense that you find yourself putting your foot in your mouth and speaking before you think, or maybe even sometimes acting before you think. I think all of us have at one time or another said something that we wish that we could immediately grab onto those words and bring them back and shove them back into our mouths. Or maybe you see yourself in Peter in the sense that from time to time you waver in your faith and you lack that uh, uh, solidness, that sort of groundedness and and rock-like character that Peter eventually developed, and you find yourself vacillating more often than not. Or maybe you're kind of like James and John, the sons of thunder, as Jesus called them, and that's how they came to be known. They were very brash and bold, very aggressive, found themselves often volleying for the first place in the kingdom, wanting this seat or that seat, and very self-interested, self-centered, lacking the humility and the love which should characterize believers, disciples of Christ, lacking at times the humility and love which would consider other people as more important than themselves, you would expect men like that to say, no, don't give me the first place in the kingdom. Give it to so-and-so. 
But in the Gospels, that's not how they are at all. They're wanting the first place in the kingdom. Or maybe you found yourself, perhaps on the way to church this morning, wishing you could call down fire out of heaven on somebody. That would be James and John. Or maybe you're kind of more like Andrew, living in the shadow of somebody who has more prominence than you, more um, recognizability than you do, and you've just sort of always labored in the shadows quietly, pointing one person after another to the Savior like Andrew did. Maybe you find yourself more like Philip, really uncertain of yourself in different situations, not qu- not quite knowing how to handle yourself in this situation or that situation. A numbers guy who always looks at trying to do the will of God and the work of God without God involved in it, like Philip did, and just counting the things, a, a person of, of, of cynicism and sort of skepticism and really a lack of faith and always wanting a little bit more proof or always wanting Jesus to do something else to show his glories. Maybe you're like Philip. Or maybe you're like Nathaniel. Nathaniel is the next disciple that is introduced to us at the end of John chapter 1. And we just briefly looked at Nathaniel last week because we saw in verse 45 that Philip went to get Nathaniel. And all we did really was mention him, but I didn't give you any biographical information of Nathaniel and we didn't talk about him, what type of a person he was or how he's mentioned in Scripture. And so we're going to do that today as we look at this last disciple that's mentioned at the end of John chapter 1. The very first thing that I noticed about Nathaniel at the end of John is that John gives more detail about what Jesus said to Nathaniel than he does about any of the other four disciples. Do you notice that? More text is given, more verses are given to explain Jesus' encounter with Nathaniel than John gives to explaining Jesus' first encounter even with himself or with the leader of the disciples, Peter. He records more of what Jesus said to Nathaniel than he records about what Jesus said to him in this chapter or to what Jesus said even to Peter. And that's kind of interesting to me, and I think that there's a reason for that. I think Nathaniel is a perfect way to end John chapter 1 because in Nathaniel I see at least something of my own spiritual progress in the Lord. I see a progression in Nathaniel. Nathaniel moves from a state of confusion about who Jesus is, can anything good come out of Nazareth, to a point of conviction and saying, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And then Jesus, in the last two verses of John chapter 1, shows to Nathaniel, if you believe because of this, you are going to see greater things than this. That you are going to come to a deepening and a deeper understanding of who I am and what I am here to do, even than what you have confessed here. So I think you're going to see a little bit of your own spiritual progression in this last disciple, Nathaniel. Let me give you a little bit of a biographical sketch of Nathaniel. Nathaniel's mentioned in all four Gospels, but he is only called Nathaniel in John's Gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all refer to him as Bartholomew. Bartholomew was likely his last name, his surname, or maybe sort of a nickname, but in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's always called Bartholomew. In John, he is always called Nathaniel. His full name was Nathaniel Bartholomew. That's a mouthful, isn't it? We're just going to call him Nathaniel. Bartholomew was a surname which meant son of Talmai. Bar meaning son of. Uh, Talmai was somebody's name. So he was Nathaniel, the son of Talmai. Bar Talmai Bartholomew was his last name. So all the other Gospels just refer to him with the last name, like you might call me Osman. Or I might refer to you as Rich or Wetzel or something like that. You're just using his last name, but... John gives us his first name, Nathaniel, and he's mentioned twice in the Gospel of John, once here in chapter 1, and once again at the end of John's Gospel in chapter 21, where he goes fishing with Peter and John and James, uh, Thomas, and two other disciples that are unnamed, 
after the resurrection and before the ascension. He goes out and he goes fishing with those men. And that's when Jesus appeared to those disciples there. So Nathaniel's mentioned twice. The fact that he goes fishing with Peter and James and John and Andrew might be an indication that Nathaniel Bartholomew was himself a fisherman. We find out in John chapter 21 that Nathaniel was from the city of Cana. If that sounds familiar, it's because it's mentioned in chapter 2 where Jesus performs his first miracle and it's in the city of Cana, which is Nathaniel Bartholomew's hometown. And that's only going to happen about three days after Jesus' first encounter with Nathaniel. You ever wonder how some of the disciples died? Some of them we have good records from church history about how they died. There's a couple in Scripture that we know from Scripture how they died. But not so with Nathaniel. Nathaniel, we don't know anything from Scripture about how he died. There's no prediction of his death. There's no record of his death. So the only thing we can really look to is church history. And church history is not unanimous on how Nathaniel eventually died. It is unanimous on this fact, that Nathaniel took the gospel to Persia and India, and maybe eventually as far as Armenia, and then he was martyred for the faith. There's one tradition that says that Nathaniel was put tied up into a bag and tossed in the sea. That's how he was killed. There's another tradition that says Nathaniel was crucified. So at the end of the day, we don't know how Nathaniel died, but we do know that he was martyred for his faith in the Lord Jesus and for taking the gospel to unreached people groups. So that's Nathaniel. So now we're back to John chapter 1, and I want you to see three stages in Nathaniel's spiritual progression. The first is in verses 46 to 48, where Nathaniel is existing in a state of confusion. He has a lot, a lack of clarity concerning who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. Jesus cleared that up for him, and then in verse 49, he moves to a state of conviction where he makes that confession of faith, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And then in verses 50 and 51, Jesus revealed to Nathanael that he would come to an even deeper understanding or a deeper comprehension of who Jesus was. So we're going to look at verses 46 through 51, a big chunk of text, but I think you're up for it and I think we can handle it this morning. So first of all, Nathanael's state of confusion. Of all the things that Nathanael is known for, his statement in verse 46 is probably it. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? If you know anything about Nathaniel, that is probably the statement that rings in your ears. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's unfortunate that he's not instead known for Jesus' statement about him. Indeed, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. I wish we knew that about Nathaniel, that that was the most memorable thing. But verse 46 seems to be it. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, what's behind Nathaniel's statement? Is he criticizing the Lord Jesus with those words? Is he saying that because Jesus came out of Nazareth that Jesus can't be any good? That's not what he's saying. He's really criticizing the town of Nazareth, not so much the Lord Jesus for coming out of Nazareth. Now there's something behind, and I would suggest actually two things behind Nathaniel's question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The first is that Nazareth was in itself a totally insignificant city. In every way, Nazareth... Did I say Nathaniel was an insignificant city? Nazareth was an insignificant city. A totally insignificant city in every way. Nazareth was not a vacation destination. Nazareth was not some place that you went to, to see some site or some monument or, or to visit because it had any religious significance. It was completely off of the map. It's not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned in the Talmud. It's not mentioned in Jewish commentaries on the Old Testament. It's not mentioned in any contemporary Gentile writing of the time of Jesus. It was simply completely off the radar. 
Nobody went there. There was, there was no prophet that had arisen out of Nazareth. There was no king that had come, in out of, come out of Nazareth. Nazareth was insignificant and unknown for every reason under the sun. Its present at Jesus' time was totally insignificant, and its past was even more insignificant. People didn't talk about Nazareth. So Nathaniel's question, can anything good come out of Nazareth, is a response to Philip's declaration, the Messiah has come out of Nazareth. Now isn't it interesting, since Nazareth was not the, the birthplace of any notable prophet or any notable king, that the most notable prophet and the most notable king would come out of Nazareth, Jesus himself. We know of Nazareth today, we know of Nazareth today for only one reason. One reason only. And that is because Jesus grew up in Nazareth and that was his hometown. If it hadn't been for that, Nazareth would be completely off the radar for us as well. So Philip said to Nathaniel, We have found the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. That one who was prophesied in the Old Testament, who is the coming king, the coming redeemer, the coming deliverer, the son of David, the one who established the messianic kingdom and set it up as predicted by all the Old Testament prophets. We have found that one. You have found the great prophet, the one of whom Moses spoke? Yeah. The servant of the Lord of whom Isaiah spoke? Yeah. The good shepherd of whom Ezekiel spoke? He's the one. Who is he? Jesus out of Nazareth. Nazareth? Out of Nazareth? Yeah, the son of a poor Jewish carpenter. Now to say that that would cut across the grain of every Jewish expectation of the time would be an understatement. That is the last thing that any Jew would expect. The last thing that any Jew would predict. That the Messiah would come out of Nazareth. So, Nathaniel's statement, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And in the Greek, actually the NIV translates it better. Out of Nazareth? Can anything good be from there? It's kind of the idea. It's shock at the idea that the Messiah would come out of Nazareth. Nazareth was an insignificant city, but there's something else in Nathaniel's words. It's more than likely that Nathaniel had a little bit of small town rivalry in his words. Now, Nathaniel was from Cana, and Cana was somewhere near Nazareth, and people in Cana looked down on the people of Nazareth, and people from Nazareth looked down on the people of Cana. It's easy to understand the small town rivalry idea because we have something like that similar to us here as well, don't we? I've joked about Clark Fork. If you're from Sandpoint, you joke about the people from Clark Fork. If you're from Clark Fork, you insult the people from Sandpoint. That's just the way it has been since long before I showed up here. I've lived here since I was three years old. My family's lived in this area for generations. My hometown is Sandpoint. I've always lived in Sandpoint. And growing up in Sandpoint, it was almost incumbent upon you as a moral obligation that you would somehow make fun of the people in Clark Fork. And it cut both ways because the people in Clark Fork made fun of the people in Sandpoint. It's kind of the same thing going on here between Nazareth and Cana. Everybody looked down on the Galileans. Remember the guys that lived up north? And all of the Galileans looked down on Nazareth. Nazareth was at the very bottom, the lowest rung of the social ladder. Everybody poked fun at the people from Nazareth. And Cana would, the guys from Cana would jump into that. And Nathaniel was from Cana. Now here's the irony of Nathaniel's statement. Nazareth was at least at a crossroads. Nazareth was one of those places where the roads would intersect and there was a city that sprung up there. And if you were going from point A to point B, you would have to go through Nazareth. It was at least somewhat of a notable city. Cana was not. Cana was completely off the beaten path. You had to leave any sort of road to go out to Cana. If you thought Nazareth was backwoods, Cana was Hickville beyond description. Cana was way out at the end of the reaches of nowhere. So for Nathaniel to say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
kind of like the pot calling the kettle black. You can understand his his dilemma. Imagine if I were to say to you, the next president of the United States would come out of Clark Fork, Idaho. Now, at this point, if you're like me, you'd probably say, you know what, I would take that. I'd be willing to gobble that up in a heartbeat. But you can understand the, the lack of the lack of understanding and the lack of believability in that statement. Clark Fork, Idaho, not known for churning out celebrities, not known for churning out star athletes, not known as the birthplace of, of the who's who of the world. Clark Fork, Idaho, insignificant. The standpoint's insignificant in terms of the world's perspective as well. So in defense of Clark Fork, and that'll be about the only thing you ever hear me say in defense of Clark Fork. So Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Clark Fork? And Philip answers Nathaniel's charge in typical Philip fashion. Come and see. That kind of strikes me as the words of somebody who felt a little bit out of their element. Doesn't offer to Nathaniel any proof, any arguments, any evidence. He just says, well, you want to see something good that's come out of Nazareth? Come and see for yourself. Come and take a look. Uh, follow me and I will take you to him and you can evaluate for yourself if it's possible for the Messiah to come out of Nazareth. Because the Messiah had come out of Nazareth and Philip had come to that conclusion. And so when he said it to Nathaniel and Nathaniel expressed that incredulity, is it even possible that the Messiah, somebody so great, so magnificent, could come from a city and a lineage of such insignificance, of such smallness, of such unrecognizability? Is it really possible? Come and see and I will show you. So Philip took Nathanael to come and see the Messiah. Now look what Jesus said. Verse 46. Verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite in whom, and indeed, sorry, in whom there is no deceit. Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Now don't you wish that Nathanael was known for that statement? Can you think of a higher compliment to be paid by the Lord than that statement? Behold, a man whose religion, whose faith is so genuine that in him there is no deceit, no guile, no hypocrisy, no falsehood whatsoever. That is one of the highest compliments that could possibly be paid to anybody. Because in the heart of, and I think I could say this with relative certainty, In the heart of every person here, there is deceit and there is guile. There is duplicity. The word for deceit here was the word that was used to describe bait that you would put on the hook to disguise the hook when you would go fishing. You had to use guile, trickery, deceit in order to trick the fish and get the fish to bite the hook. And so it was used of bait, something that was put out there to deceive somebody and to trick somebody into something. Uh, The fish thinks it's going to get dinner, and it becomes dinner. You have to use guile or trickery to accomplish that. That's the word that was used. It's the same word that's used of Jacob, uh, Isaac's son Jacob, of his treachery, of his deceit, of his guile in the Old Testament. Jacob was a trickster. He was a conniver. He conned his brother. He conned his father. He conned his father-in-law. That guy conned everybody he came into contact with. He was a trickster. He was somebody in whom there was tremendous deceit. That's how the Bible describes him, his trickery and deceit. But here Jesus saw Nathanael and he said to him, here is an Israelite, a Jew indeed, that is a genuine Jew. The word indeed or truly means genuine or real or authentic. Here is an authentic Jew in whom there is no Jacob, no deceit, no trickery. And in Jesus' day, even the false 
even the religious leaders were described as whitewashed tombs. Men who looked good on the outside, but inside they were dead men's bones. Inside there was corruption, there was sin, there was deceit. They dressed up in their long phylacteries and all of their righteous garments and paraded themselves around in all of their outward religious expression in order to deceive people into thinking they were holier than they were. So in Jesus' day and in Nathaniel's day, the religious religion of the people was a complete sham, a complete fraud. It was all falsehood. It was built on pretense. Outward righteousness rather than inward humility and righteousness. So for Jesus to say of Nathaniel, here is a Jew, a true Jew, in whom there is no deceit, that makes Nathaniel a wonderful exception to the general principle of the day. In that day, the Jews were not Jews genuinely. They were Jews who had the mark of circumcision in their outward flesh, and that was it. Inside, they did not have a circumcised heart. Inside, their heart did not belong to the Lord. Inside, they were not children of Abraham by faith in Abraham. They did not model Abraham's faith or the genuineness of Abraham's character. They were more like Jacob, deceitful, guileful, trickery, treacherous, conniving. But here was Nathaniel, who Jesus said, he's a true Jew. He is a Jew who is one inwardly. His heart belongs to the Lord, and in him there is no deceit. Now, for Jesus to say that of Nathaniel required something. It required a knowledge of Nathaniel's character and his innermost being that was more than merely human. That is why as Nathanael was approaching Jesus and Jesus said this of him, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Look at Nathanael's instant reaction. How do you know me? How do you know me? We just met. I just walked up here. We haven't had a conversation yet. You don't know. Now listen, somebody in whom there was deceit and uh, trickery and guile would have walked up and heard Jesus say that and said, Well, thank you very much, Lord. I appreciate that. But Nathaniel is open and honest about it. How do you know me? Now, Nathaniel's not willing to judge his own heart as to whether or not there's deceit and guile and trickery present or not. He can't make that evaluation of himself. I can't make that evaluation of myself, and you can't make that evaluation of yourself, because in us there is deceit. And our eyes are blinded to the true spiritual state of our own hearts because they're desperately wicked. Wicked. And there's nothing good in them, in our natural state. So we can't evaluate the state of our own heart And Nathaniel doesn't attempt to do that. He just says, how do you know this? How can you evaluate my character? Did Philip say something to you? Have you spoken to my parents? Did you meet somebody along the way who said that this is going to be the type of person you're going to meet? How is it that you can evaluate my character and the innermost recesses of my being and see into my heart? How is knowledge like that possible? How do you know me? Understand the question? Jesus understands what Nathaniel is asking. Jesus understood, Nathaniel is asking him, how can you possibly evaluate my character like that, having never met me? Well, Jesus then told him. Look at verse 47. Uh, verse, sorry, verse 48. Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. That's kind of an enigmatic statement, and all of the details aren't filled in there as to exactly what Jesus is referring to, or what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree, we can sort of look at the cultural context in which that statement was made and sort of use some sanctified speculation a little bit to try and put together some pieces as to what Jesus is referring to. Back in in that day, in those days, most people's houses were little one-room affairs, not big spread-out things like you and I have with multiple rooms and hallways and all of that, just one-room houses in which you cooked and you slept and you ate and you did all of the business inside that one big uh, room that was your house. 
And back in those days, it wasn't uncommon for people to build their house on a piece of property or next to a fig tree or some sort of a tree that would offer them some shade during the hot summer days. And so Jews would go out oftentimes into the shade under the fig tree or the olive tree or whatever it is that was growing up, and they would sit in the shade during the heat of the day. That's where they would rest. That's where they would relax because there was cooking and things going on inside the house. It was busy sometimes crowded, oftentimes very hot. And so they would go out and they would sit in the shade. And that's where a Jewish person, particularly devout ones, would go and they would read Scripture, they would pray, they would meditate, they would meet with God there in the shade and the coolness of the day. Now I think that that is what Jesus is referring to. Before Philip went and fetched you, while you were under the fig tree, now wherever that was, Jesus wasn't present and Nathaniel knew that. And Nathaniel knew it was me and the Lord under that tree and nobody else. I was with God there. I was quiet with the Lord. I've never seen this man before. And yet as Philip Nathaniel walked up, Jesus said, when you were under the tree, I saw you. I knew you there. Now whatever it was that took place under the tree between Nathaniel and his God, the Lord Jesus was a witness to that. He knew it. And that's what he's saying to Nathaniel. When you were there with the Lord, I was there with you. And I saw into the recesses of your heart. I knew you before you knew me. I loved you before you loved me. Before I called you, I saw you and I saw you there. And that's how I know you because I know everything. It's a statement of his omniscience. That's why Nathaniel immediately moves from that state of confusion into a state of conviction, his deepening conviction. Rabbi, you are the son of God. Nobody can know that unless he be God's son. And he uses two titles, actually three if you count rabbi, but two of them that have significant Old Testament or a lot of Old Testament significance. The Son of God, you are the Son of God, and you are the King of Israel. Those two titles were used of the Messiah throughout the Old Testament. Nathaniel was familiar with the Old Testament. He knew from Psalm chapter 2 that God had called the Messiah his son, and he knew from Psalm chapter 2 that the Messiah was called the King. Now, to call him the Son of God is a statement of his deity, but so is the title King of Israel. Because all the way through the Old Testament, the only one who is called in this type, in this way, the King of Israel, was God Himself. If you were to step back into this day and stop Nathaniel right there and ask him, Nathaniel, who is the true King of Israel? You know what Nathaniel would have said? Yahweh. The Lord is the true King of Israel. Our God, the one true God, He is the King of Israel. Although there had been other kings who had ministered God's king, uh, uh, kingly rule over the nation, through the years, there was only one true God of all of Israel, and it was or one true king over all of Israel, and that was the Lord God. Listen to how a couple of the prophets describe it. Zephaniah 3.15, The Lord has taken away His judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you will fear disaster no more. Isaiah 33.22, For the Lord our ju- is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. Zach, uh, Jeremiah 10.10, 10, The Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. And then the Old Testament predicted the birth of the Messiah and called Him a King. Micah 5, verse 2, As for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah from you. One will go forth to me to be a ruler in Israel. And Zechariah 9.9, 9, this is a familiar one, Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation humble and mounted on a donkey, even on the colt, the foal of a donkey. And those were the Old Testament predictions that God would rule as a king in His Messiah. Because the Messiah was to be a king. And we're going to talk about this more next Sunday. 
we talk about the king of Christmas. That Jesus came and he was a king. He was born a king. That is his office and he will rule as a king. And that is what Nathaniel confesses. You are the king of Israel. Now, here's something significant to note. Nathaniel has just been called an Israelite and then Nathaniel says, you're the king of Israel. What does that make of the relationship between Nathaniel and Jesus? That he's Nathaniel's king. That's what Nathaniel's confessing. You're an Israelite. He's the king of Israel. And if he's the king of Israel, then he's my king if I'm an Israelite. That's what Nathaniel's acknowledging. Right there in that statement, you are the son of God, Rabbi. You are the king of Israel. Nathaniel is bowing the knee of his heart to somebody that he has become convinced is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that by believing in him, he might have life in his name. Now, Nathaniel has moved from confusion to conviction, and now Jesus tells him, you're going to have even a deepening comprehension of who I am. Look at verse 50 and 51. Jesus said to him, because I said to you that you saw, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? That shouldn't be a question mark, by the way. It's probably more likely a statement that Jesus made. It's because I said to this, said this to you that you believe. Jesus is indicating the reason behind Nathaniel's belief. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, that's why you believe. Then he says to him, verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? Truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say to you, you are going to see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is referring to an Old Testament passage, Genesis 28, to the vision that Jacob had in a dream. Genesis 28, verse 12, says that Jacob laid down out in the desert on his way to a certain city, and he fell asleep and he dreamed. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, Jesus takes the analogy or the picture from Jacob's dream and he applies it to himself in this setting, but he tweaks it just a little bit for his own purposes. And here's what Jesus is doing. In Jacob's dream, it occurred just before God um, reaffirmed the unconditional Abrahamic covenant to Jacob, in which he said, I'm going to give you this land that's going to have these descendants, and here are the conditions of the covenant. Here's what I'm going to do, not what you have to do, but what I'm going to do unconditionally to fulfill my promise to your descendants. Right before that promise is given, right before that covenant is reaffirmed, Jacob had the vision in which he saw from earth a ladder stretched up going into the heavens and the angels of God ascending and descending on this ladder. And the point of that vision and the point and the symbolism of the ladder was that this ladder was the thing that connected earth to heaven. There was the link between heaven and earth. And God did this in order to demonstrate to Jacob in his uncertainty and in a very difficult time right before he meets Esau, in order to demonstrate to Jacob, look, I have given you this promise and I'm giving you this covenant, but don't worry, I'm going to be present with you. There is a connection between heaven and earth and the angels are there ascending and descending, indicating heaven's help to earth and earth's petitions to heaven. This channel that existed, this link, this connection between earth or between earth and heaven. Now Jesus take, took that dream that symbolism, and he tweaked it ever so slightly. Do you notice Jesus has changed? What stands in place of the ladder? The Son of Man. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And what Jesus is doing there is he is saying, I am the ladder, I am the link that connects earth to heaven. I came down from heaven to earth. I'm going to ascend from earth to heaven. All heavenly blessings come down via me. I am the presence of God. I am the link of God between heaven and earth. I am the presence of God here among men. I am here to fulfill the covenant. I am here to execute the covenant. I am here to establish a new covenant. All of that is 
in Jesus' statement there. Now, Nathaniel at this point didn't understand any of that. What did he understand? All he understood was that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's the Son of God, and He is the King of Israel. But what Jesus is saying is, you believed that of me because I've revealed this much to you. But Nathaniel, there's going to come a point where I'm going to reveal this much to you, and you're going to come to understand that I am the fulfillment of all God's covenants. I am the one who is bringing all of this to pass. I am the presence of God from heaven on earth. And the angels of God ascend and descend via me because I am the link between you and your God. That is what Nathaniel would come to understand. Now, you say, did Nathaniel understand all of that at that moment? I don't think he did. I think Jesus' statement to him, probably one of those things he put away in the back of his mind and said, not quite sure what he's getting at there. But I do get the idea that but he's going to show me things that I have not yet seen and he's going to reveal to me things that I haven't yet understood. So Nathaniel moved from confusion through conviction and even into a deepening comprehension. Now, friends, here's what I want you to notice. This is exactly how the Lord deals with you and I. I see my own spiritual journey right there in Nathaniel. There was a time, likely, when you were very confused about who Jesus Christ was. You had no idea. You were confused about who he was, what he came to do, what he promised to do, what he offered to you, what his role in human history was, and how it all pertained to your salvation. You knew none of that. You may have even been worse off than Nathaniel in that you were hostile to the Lord. But here's how Jesus deals with his sheep. Here's how Jesus deals with those who are his own. He reveals enough of himself to them that we might understand he's the Son of God, he's the King of Israel, he's the Savior of the world, and I, by believing in him I have life in his name. That's the moment of salvation. And then over the course of time and over the course of your life, if you're like me, you've probably noticed that the Lord reveals to you more and more and more and brings you from deep into deep into a deeper and richer understanding of who He is and what He did. And there is never any exhausting of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He brings us from one level of knowledge to another level of knowledge. This is what He did for all of the disciples, not just Nathaniel, but Philip and James and John and Andrew and Peter, all of the disciples. He took them from one level of understanding to another level of understanding to the point where they could understand not only is He the Son of God and the King of Israel, He's the link between God and man. He is God Himself here. He's the channel by which we go from earth to heaven. And that's how the Lord deals with those of us who are His sheep. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You that by Your grace You take us from a point of utter confusion and even hostility to Yourself and that us as we as rebels, that you turn our hearts, you grant us repentance, you change us, you reveal enough of yourself and of your word and of your will to us that we come to a point of understanding who you are. And so we confess and we thank you with Nathaniel that you are the King of Israel, you are the Son of God, that you, our Lord Jesus, are God in human flesh, worthy of all honor and power and dominion, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. We thank you that you are the King. We thank You that You are our King, and we gladly bow our knees before You in adoration and praise for all that You are and all that You have done on our behalf. Thank You that You do not leave us in our ignorance. Thank You that You do not leave us even at a point of simplistic understanding, but that You draw us deeper and deeper into knowing You more and more. We thank You that You are conforming us to the image of Christ, Your Son. We are grateful for all that You have done, and we bless and praise Your holy name. In the name of our great God and Savior, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. 
If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.